0: Lord, would you help us today as we place ourselves under the Holy Spirit's activity through the preaching of your word. And I ask, Lord, that I as your messenger would simply reflect your truth, that you would be glorified, that your people would be strengthened. Lord, that those who are present with us today who do not know you as Lord and Savior would hear the gospel and, and, and know the beauty and the power of the cross And Lord, that we would be changed people as a result of this, Lord. Teach us, mold us, shape us, Lord, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. In that passage, we came face to face with a very sad story that we know as David and Bathsheba. And we were confronted last week with the devastating power of sin in the heart of the servant of God. And we noted the context of David's sin, and I identified like four particular areas of context, his success, his sovereignty, his self-indulgence, his softness. It's kind of like the, 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 the arena from which these issues actually broke forth. And then we also noted the course that David's sin took. He saw, he sought after, and then he took and lay with Bathsheba. And of course, we saw in those last few words of verse 5, the consequences of David's sin when he receives that note. And in that note, Bathsheba says, I am pregnant. And we considered at the end the serious truth that sin will take you farther than you want to go, slowly but wholly taking control. That's what we've seen happen in David's life here. And we're also going to see that sin will keep you longer than you want to stay, and ultimately, it will cost you far more than you want to pay. The statement's been around for quite a while. It's a good reminder of The effect of sin and the course of sin and the the damage that is the result of unrestrained sin in the heart of a believer. And today we see these truths fleshed out even more. But remember, each time David pursued his sin, there were providential things taking place that were hindering him or obstacles in the way. And there were opportunities then for David to stop and to think and to consider what he was doing. And ultimately to repent. They were acts of kindness from God. But they were ignored by him. And so he just pressed on, pursuing what he wanted to do. We will continue to see obstacles in the way. Obstacles that should have been reminders to David to stop and to repent and to restore his walk with God rather than walking down this dangerous path. But in the greater context, if you remember, of this whole section, chapters 9 through 12, we see the theme of God's kindness, his hessed love extended. Let me just remind you, David extended that love to Mephibosheth, it was received, he extended it to Hanun, the Ammonite king, and it was rejected. And so in those two illustrations, we see receiving God's kindness, rejecting God's kindness, and now as David pursues this sin, there are providentially aspects of God's kindness that are directing him to repentance that he chooses to reject. And that's why Romans 2, 4, and 5 reminds us that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. But our problem is that our hearts are hardened, and that's what sin does. When we say, we're going to continue in that sin, we're going to continue down that path, we are hardening ourselves, we're hardening our hearts to the word of God, to the message of God, to the counsel of God that is swirling within us by means of the Holy Spirit. And we are in dangerous territory. Here's what Proverbs 28:13 says. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who conf- uh, confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Conceal or confess? Which is it going to be? Well, for David, sadly... It's not confess. What we're going to see is him going to continue down this path of concealing now or attempting to conceal his sin. And so we're moving now uh, from, from one kind of idea to another idea, and that is this. The destructive power of sin that can beguile the servant of God to commit further sin that they never imagined or intended to commit. He is beguiled. He has been affected in his thinking by the sin that he is committing. And he is believing things that only sin will introduce him to rather than believing the promises of God. And so he continues down the path of sin. And he is entangled then by its web. The St. Petersburg Times once carried the story of a thief who was hungry, and so he went into a store to grab a sausage. He grabbed the sausage, he ran out of the store and around the corner. But what he didn't realize is that when he grabbed that one sausage, there were 20 other sausages connected to it. When the police finally caught up with him, he was entangled in these sausages. Of course, he was taken into custody. And there's a sense, friends, that we, because of our sin can find ourselves in the same place. We get entangled with what we think is good. We get entangled with what we think is going to be pleasurable, what we need. And we grab it and we run with it and we find ourselves being entangled and brought down by the very thing that we thought was going to bring satisfaction. So now David has sinned with Bathsheba and ultimately gotten her pregnant and he has two options before him turn to God in repentance, or seek a way to get out of his mess by himself. I mean, he is the king after all. I mean, he is powerful after all. I mean, he is skillful after all. And by the way, David has gotten himself out of a mess after a mess after a mess. Well, actually, we should take a word out of there. He has gotten out of mess after mess after mess, but I don't know that the word himself should be there. What we saw in the life of David is that God, in his care, consistently allowed David to find ways out of the predicaments that he was in. And you know, sometimes God's kindness to us can be the basis for our choosing to sin. Something to think about. We presume upon God's kindness. And David here says, you know what, I'm not going to turn to God in repentance, rather than bow my head and say, God, forgive me for my adultery with Bathsheba, for getting her pregnant now. I'm going to now press on, and I'm going to find a way with my skill to cover up this sin. So we must be honest as we come to this passage. We must be honest to say that we are actually very much like David. It is natural for us to look for ways to cover up our sin so that we are not exposed for who we really are. And when we allow our flesh to control our thinking, it tells us things like, hey, you know what? You've got all sorts of skillful tools. I mean, you're smart. You're cunning. You're slick. You've learned all these things. I mean, you may have watched some documentaries on TV to figure out how people have have been sleuths or have been deceptive. And maybe there's a way you can use those tools to get out of your being exposed. So you'd rather go down that path and say, God, I was wrong, please forgive me. Sometimes we even, we even think that if we just fight for this cause, that, that, that everything will just turn out okay. It really is not that big of a deal. But friends, this is how Satan wants us to think, that our way of dealing with our sin is better than God's way of dealing with our sin. This is the challenge, and we all face this. There was a, a husband who came home one night very, very late. and he was, he was drunk, but he quietly goes up the stairs and goes into the bathroom, and he had gotten into a fight at the bar after, uh, after a few hours and after a lot of drinks. And his face was just kind of bludgeoned, and he had some... He had some, you know, some cuts and some bruises, and so he's like, you know what, I don't want my wife to know not only that I'm, that I'm drunk, but I was at the bar, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover my face. And so he went to the bathroom, and he put Band-Aids on, all the different cuts and bruises, and he went to bed kind of smug, like, oh, this is great, got it all covered. Wakes up in the morning, and his wife says, you were drunk last night, weren't you? You got into a fight last night, didn't you? And he's like, what, 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 what do you mean? No, honey, I, I wasn't drunk. I didn't get into a fight. And she said, well, if you weren't drunk and you weren't in a fight, then who put all the Band-Aids on the bathroom mirror? <laughs> now, sadly, the reader of this story is going to see David get entangled with sausages as well as peeling off Band-Aids from the mirror. Our attempts in the middle of our sin are like putting band-aids on that mirror because we're really not dealing with ourselves. We're just putting up a facade that we think is going to solve the problem. And so there's a warning for us, isn't there? That attempts to cover sin will always prove empty. That God's kindness that leads to repentance is the best way forward. So we're going to see now how David seeks to cover his sin. First of all, with manipulation. Secondly, with murder. So manipulation. David's manipulation plan and the word frustration. What we're going to see here is David has a plan, but every step of the way he's frustrated because that plan doesn't come to fruition. What is David's plan? Well, to see it clearly, let's go down to verse 11. And we hear it from the words, of Uriah himself. He says, shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? See, that is David's intention the whole time. This is what he's after. We find that expression used throughout this text by the palace gossipers in verse 11, by David himself and Uriah, as well as by the narrator a couple of times, verse 9 and 13. And really there's three plans that he puts into place here by means of manipulation, by means of trying to get him to his house. So let's just walk through what he does here. First of all, plan A. Plan A is to create an opportunity. Now remember, David's trying to be slick. He's trying to accomplish something as quickly as possible so that there can be legitimacy that this baby is not his. This baby actually ultimately is Uriah's. So plan A comes Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. Now notice, by the way, all of the times the word send is used in the story. David sends in order to control, in order to dominate, and now to conceal. David uses his position and power to send for Uriah, to bring him back to Jerusalem so that he can accomplish his purposes now in seeking to cover up his sin. And Uriah will do his duty. He'll come and report, but hopefully he'll run home and spend an evening with his wife, and everything will be all fine and dandy. That's the idea. That's the thinking. So when Uriah arrives... David appears to be greatly concerned with what's going on in the battlefield. But David isn't even thinking about the battlefield at all. He is consumed with what's going on here at home. But here's what he says, verse 7, when Uriah... Came to him. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. I mean, there's lots of people he could ask. Why, you know, why am I being brought home to report to David? But again, hey, you know what? I am a servant of David. He's the king. I do what my king asked me to do. If he's summoning me, then I'm gonna come and I'm gonna report. But you gotta think, you know, Uriah's probably thinking, all right, what's going on here? Maybe I just got chosen. Okay, that's fine. But we who are reading the story, we, we know better. We see through this deception. We know that David is simply trying to legitimize Uriah's summoning in order to give Uriah the opportunity to go home. In other words, common report to me has absolutely no bearing on what's going on except to say this is the reason why I brought you. But David's ultimate reason is to get him to go to his house. And we ha- we're left to ask ourselves a few questions. Let me just walk us through them. Question number one, how can our hero, the anointed of Israel, be so hypocritical? I mean, I think this is one of the things, when you're reading through this, this whole book in 2 Samuel, you get to chapter 11, you're just like, what? I mean, it's not just, what, with, with, you know, with Bathsheba, but now it's even this further stuff. How can he maintain appearances of anxiety about the welfare of his troops after what he has done? A little different angle question now. Will God allow such hypocrisy to stand or to continue? And actually what we're going to see is he's going to allow it to continue for a time being. Another question. Will the man after God's own heart be able to cover up his sin with Bathsheba while at the same time have Joab's and Israel's best interests at heart? Can he do two different things? Can you carry on an illicit affair at the same time running a country? Can you do that? I'm talking about David here. (laughs) These are all questions that have to be asked. Plan A is now implemented. But notice the opportunity is there. Secondly, he needs some encouragement. This is Plan B. Not only create an opportunity, but now encourage his loyalty. We'll see how this flows out now in verse 6. But David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's possibly just a, a euphemism for go home and enjoy your wife, right? And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Oh, and, and take her this great fruit basket, all right? I mean, see, it's like, I want to encourage you, go down there, have a great time. You know, maybe it was like a, a gift card to Horatio's, and then, you know, something at the embassy suites or something like that, that they have back there. I mean, it, it was just encouragement to, to go spend time with your wife. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. You see that? Go down to your house, did not go down down to the house. This is the, the literature of the story kicking in here, letting us know what's happening. David just wants Uriah to come home from the battlefield and spend an evening with his wife so that the baby would appear to be his. Now why doesn't Uriah just do what any normal human male would do? Why doesn't he just go home and enjoy his wife? I mean, really, is it too much to ask? Is it too much to expect from a full-blooded warrior of David? And what's the answer? Yes, because you're not dealing with some small fry Uriah. We're talking here about a man who has some integrity and is a man that is driven by loyalty. And So let's just read on here. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? I mean, go. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and drink and to lie with my wife, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah... Unlike David at this moment is a man driven by loyalty. He is loyal to God as is evidenced by his mention of the Ark of the Covenant. He is loyal to the armies of Israel and Judah who are dwelling in Booth. He is loyal to his master Joab and his fellow mighty men who are camping in the open field. He is driven by a military honor code that says if we are fighting, we are not then to indulge ourselves and the pleasures of life because our focus is to fight the battle. And he would not violate that simply because he was home and had the opportunity to enjoy his wife. So actually David is asking him to do something that would violate that honor code. As we said already in the story, God in his kindness is speaking providentially to David and his conscience and every time he's frustrated by the obstacles in his way, And this happens again, and we're left to ask: Is it possible that Uriah has caught on to what has been, uh, why he has been summoned back to David in particular? Now we don't know. It would be speculation to answer that question. The text doesn't tell us. We never want to say more than the text says. We don't want to say less than the text says. So we only gather our, our understanding from the text. You know, Sometimes we pride ourselves from reading in the lines, and we come to wrong conclusions about what's going on. The writer, then, is giving us a picture, and we want to stay with what he says. We do not know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that Uriah's words should communicate and rebuke David. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's with the army, Okay? And his loyalty is to the army and his loyalty is to his brothers who are out there, not to his wife in that particular situation. When Uriah mentions the ark, is David reminded of God's gracious covenant with him? Is David reminded that within the ark, God has recorded and communicated the following words, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife? In the ark are also the words, you shall not commit adultery. Now, assuming that Uriah has no idea, God can still use the words of someone who doesn't know what he's saying to communicate, counsel someone who is in the middle of sin. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, right? And he can speak through people in ways to shake you in your sin, and people may have no clue what they're doing. Now notice the comparison that we have here. It's a stark comparison between David and Uriah. First, David, the king of Israel, is selfish. While his army is engaged in warfare, David is home satisfying himself with another man's wife. Uriah comes, and he is selfless. When summoned to the king and given an opportunity to enjoy the rest and relaxation as well as his wife, he refuses. Not only that, David, the king of Israel, is cunning and deceptive. I mean, he is working his plan. He's using all the resources that are at his disposal. He is abusing his authority and power. Uriah is unsuspecting, and that's the very virtue that is going to bring about his death. Third, David is characterized by infidelity and disloyalty. and As we've seen, Uriah the Hittite, on the other hand, is marked by fidelity to the king and his commander-in-chief and loyalty to the cause of Israel. So here we have um, David, who now is... Frustrated because his plan isn't working, and in that frustration, though, we also see this beautiful picture of a man that we can respect, almost a younger David, and it's a it's a stark contrast, isn't it? And by the way, it's Uriah the who, the Hittite, a pagan who now is converted, who was loyal. To the armies of Israel, <laughs> Plan C, right, create an opportunity, encourage his loyalty, Plan C, weaken his integrity, weaken his integrity. I see this is, this is one of the things I think that happens when Christian kids go off to college. They go into the military there's this. Pursuit. there's this challenge to to get them to do something, to to kind of weaken their their ability to, to choose rightly and to be careful. And so all these tools are used. Well, this is what David's thinking. If I can just get him home, if I can just keep him here another day, then maybe we can still see this happen. Verse 12 and following. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. In other words, hang around for a bit. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate at his present, in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So here, here's this new plan. Have Uriah stay another couple of days. Rest. Relax, Uriah. Come on, you need it, buddy. Let me give you this opportunity. This is a gift from the king to you. Okay, take advantage of it. Secondly, you know, I want you to come to my, my house for dinner tomorrow night, and, and, and you're going to eat. Now, you're in a king's palace. You're going you're gonna to eat well. I mean, you've been out on the fields. You've been eating just scraps. You're going to eat well. Not only that, you're going you're gonna to drink. So he's just working this plan. And you know what it's like when you, like, you had prime rib, and, you know, you've been to a Brazilian steakhouse, basically, if you know what I'm talking about. You're like, oh, all right, right, Now And then you, you add just all this alcohol, and now he's... He's drunk. He's full. And you're at a point where you're just like, you know, I don't care anymore. Right? This is what happens when, when, you're, when you're fully satisfied. It's like your, your moral compass tends to drop down. That's his goal here. He wants him to be weak in his integrity so that he'll just loosen his moral conviction. He'll soften him up a little bit. And he'll give in. But here this. The irony of this passage is this, that Uriah, drunk, is more pious than David sober. Let me say that again. Uriah, drunk, is more pious or has more integrity than David sober. Now, you've heard the poetic verse that says, The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Awry. This plan is going awry. David's attempts have been deceptive. They've been cunning. They've been clever. He's abused his power. He's involved other people in his plan. But each time they failed. And as this, this, is a, this, this failure is right before him, again, it's God's way of reminding David that he's walking down a dangerous path And it's a dangerous past that he is entangled in, and that the the option is then to stop and to listen and to repent. Sir Walter Scott was right when he wrote, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. There's so much truth in that. It's It's not a biblical statement at all, but it is rooted in biblical ideas. So with his lies and deception, David has painted himself into a corner. He has entangled himself with more and more sausages. He has unwittingly continued to put band-aids on the mirror, so to speak. Now sadly, being political season, we don't have to look too far in either of the two main parties for examples of deception and manipulation used in order to cover up scandalous sin, right? I brought it up, but set it aside. Because friends, we do the same thing. It's easy to point our fingers, and there's, there's a rightness to saying, this is what's going on. But God is more concerned about what's going on in your heart and how your heart works and how, how naturally and easily when we are, have embraced sin and we know that we're guilty of it, we choose then to continue down a path of covering things up rather than stopping and humbling ourselves and repenting of our sin. And So I want to ask the question, what are some tactics we tend to use in order to cover up our sin? Let me just give you three. Just, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are three that came to my mind um, as I was reflecting on this. Number one... Um, we, we rename sin, and the ways we cover it is we rename it, right? Um, a drunk is now an alcoholic. Um, someone who commits adultery now has had an affair. We're, just, we're using words that just kind of soften the blow and make it, well, it was just an affair. No, the Bible says it was adultery, right? Uh, stealing is now called borrowing, right? I borrowed that from about 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. You, you mean that the part of giving it back was something that you didn't do, right? Um, worry and anxiety is now called a disorder. And as a whole, that just kind of opens up a whole new realm of saying, I'm not responsible for my actions, it's a disorder that I have now, and that's why I can be the way I am. Let me just give you an example. This is when I was in Michigan years ago. There was a lady that would visit the church every once in a while with her husband, and she would meet me at the door. and She'd say, Pastor Rod, um, I, I, am a, I suffer from adult ADD, so if, if somehow I, I you know, stop paying attention um, you know, or seem like I'm not engaged, that's what's going on. I said, all right, that's good. All right, why don't you come and sit here in the front, and if I notice that you're dodging away, I'll make sure that I, I nudge you. And She didn't like that. Now see, the thing is, she wanted that as an excuse. This is what happens. We, we soften things up because we rename it rather than saying, I have a responsibility. Right now, with all the rain, and maybe it's getting a little warmer in here, you feel oh, it's a little harder to stay awake. and stuff like that. Hey, Fight, fight through it, right? This is, we have a responsibility. It's time for the word of God. And I realize we all kind of doze off, but the point is, we all have a responsibility with things that God has given us to do. We don't just excuse it away with some ism. All right, rename it. Secondly, uh, minimize it. It isn't that big of a deal, right? It was just a lollipop that our child stole when they went into the store. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a small, I mean, it's like five cents. What, what big deal is it? Parents, before the parenting class, here's some advice. Your child steals a lollipop. You walk back into that store with a lollipop, even if it's sticky. You say, I want to see the manager. Why? My child stole this from your store, and I want to make sure this is right. And the child's like, oh. They learn a lesson, right? It is a big deal. because Stealing a lollipop is going to move into candy canes and then ice cream bars and all down the path, right? I mean, I'm not being silly. I'm serious. As children, it's little things, right? And it grows up to become big things. So you minimize it. Or are you just making a mountain out of a molehill? Well, the question is, is the molehill significant? And if it is significant, then we need to treat it more like a mountain. Not everything though should be treated like a mountain, right? Get that. Rename it. Minimize it. Thirdly, dilute it. Hey, we're all sinners anyway. I know you did that, but who am I to judge? All that is is trying to dilute sin. It's a way to cover it up without actually dealing with it God's way. You with me there? Okay. So, friends, what we're we're to do if we're to honor God with our sin, we must do at least three things. Number one, confess. Number two, repent. Number three, mortify. Let me just walk through those quickly here. To confess means that we agree with God that our thoughts and actions are actually sin. So it means to agree with God. Because you're sitting under the Word, or you're reading your Bible, and God comes and says, this is what you have, this is what you're doing, this is the sin that you're committing to confess is saying, you know what, God, you are right. What I'm doing truly is sin. I'm agreeing, I'm acknowledging that. That is not in and of itself sufficient, though, just to agree with God. Secondly, there's repentance. To repent means that we have changed the direction and orientation of our hearts. This is where it talks about, you know, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Is that Ephesians 4, 23. All right? We, we, were to, we were pursuing going down the path of sinfulness. Now we're pursuing going down the path of righteousness. All right? So confess, repent. The third thing, though, By the way, with confession and repentance, there is forgiveness, there's restoration. But God doesn't want us to stop there. God then wants us to, as we are no longer walking in that sin, or we are aware of it and we are repentant of it now, to begin mortifying it. That means to put it to death. And this is all part of your sanctification. Those of you men who are reading through the pursuit of holiness, that's what this is all about, pursuing, putting your sin to death for the glory of God. This is what happens as we mature in Christ. Listen, as we mature in Christ, what does God do? He exposes more sin for us. Thank you, God. Really appreciate it. But the reason He's doing that is because He loves us. And the reason He's doing that is because He wants us to deal with it and to deal with it His way. And we can deal with it His way. Why? Because, as we saw in the video, we're covered by the blood, we've been forgiven, we're not condemned. So he's like, hey, this is still going on here, so acknowledge it, all right? Repent of it, confess it, and begin now to to mortify it. And with that knowledge, with the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, we're able to, over our life and our pursuit of Christlikeness, mortify sin. And this is where the put-offs and the the put-ons come together uh, in Paul's writing in particular to describe how we are to grow in Christ. Now this is all part of what flows out then of the implications of David's attempt to manipulate. And he just hits frustration after frustration. Now we're going to jump into his next point and his next struggle and his next plan, he might want to say, and it is now to murder Uriah, to murder Uriah. And quite frankly, guys, this turns into a fiasco. This is not what he intends ultimately to happen. See, David didn't set out with the purpose of murdering Uriah. He has become so entrapped in his own web of adultery and deception and manipulation that his mind is now so affected by his sinful thinking that he continues down a path to a place that he never thought he would go. A place he couldn't have imagined. A place that he never intended to be. When he was walking on the roof of that palace that day, he wasn't thinking about hatching a plan to kill innocent people. Warriors in his army. If you had said to him on that day, hey David, stop thinking those lustful thoughts. This won't, get or won't go well for you. If he's like most people, he would have responded something like this. Hey dude, you're all doom and gloom. Can a man have some fun? It won't hurt anybody. Lighten up. See, sin will take you farther than you can even imagine you will go. And you will be doing things you would not imagine that you would be doing. And here is David now plotting someone's death. The death of one of his trusted warriors the death of a trusted warrior that is loyal to him, so much so that he should be held up as an example for all the other warriors to follow. And friends, there's a lesson for us to learn here as we've learned this before. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you far more than you even want to pay. David thought that he was in control, even at this moment. I can have that woman, and I will. So she's pregnant. Well, I can solve that problem, too. I'll just get Uriah to come back. No problem. And when that doesn't work, he hatches this other plan to murder Uriah. David is not done sending yet. David will now send to kill Uriah in battle so here's, here's the message this won't take us too long to work through but just hear, hear the story unfold in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah in the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die I mean, can you just imagine writing those words? Now we must see this letter in the, the greater context of who David has been. Who does David weep over when they die? Saul, <laughs> the one who consistently tried to kill him. Surprisingly, Abner. David is so sensitive in his heart that he weeps for even his enemies as they die. And now there's a coldness about him that he would even write a letter like this and put it in the hands of the one that he was wanting to murder. There's no mourning going on with David at all. Only the pursuit of satisfying himself and ridding himself of the responsibility of what he has done. What we're going to see now is a stunning and shocking thing, but it's also a warning. David's drive to cover up his sin leads him to sin again and again and again and again. And each new step of deceit and subterfuge seems easier than the last, until he's gotten so desensitized that he's even willing to murder. Now the actual murder, the message is delivered to Joab and Joab obeys the command of his king and we find out that Uriah dies, but get this, not everything goes as planned. Because not only does Uriah die, but we're told there, that there are some of the servants of David who are among the people that fell that day. And we don't know how many. It could have been three. It could have been 15. That isn't the point. The point is that it wasn't just Uriah. In other words, David's desire to murder Uriah has now created another problem. Why were these people even going into the battle where they were? That's the point of this this report that goes back now to David because Joab understands the significance. Yes, Uriah is dead, but these other guys have also died, and they're going to be having their wives ask, how did they die? Why were they even there? So We have a general report, and notice how Joab couches to the messenger how this, this message should go. He brings out of the the annals of Hebrew history, Judges 9, 50 through 57, where he he says, this is what David's probably going to say. He's going to talk about this battle where the the men got too close to the wall and this lady just dropped a rock on their heads and they went splat. It's like, no, 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 we don't get that close to walls because we're very vulnerable if we get that close to walls. There was no reason for them to get that close to this wall. Yes, an army came out. Yes, they were pushed back. But there was a point in which they had to stop, but they didn't stop. Why didn't they stop? Because of you, David. These men have died because of you, David. And of course, Joab is feeling now the responsibility of this. So the messenger is sent to David, and he gives his report. Verse 22 So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab has sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance and the archer shot your servant from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. There it is. There's the news that David wanted to hear. Uriah is dead. My problems now are over. But there's a coldness in his reply that is shouting at us from this text. David says to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him." I just want to just ponder on the words that he says there. Here's kind of what he's saying. Hey, Joab, don't you worry. You'll win some, you'll lose some. Such is a soldier's fate. They know the risks. We're all going to die sometime, right? Joab, I have been successful. You have been loyal now take your anger out on the city of Rabbah and its inhabitants. Go, go, get them. Distracting the whole sin by encouraging him to finish the job. Now notice the resolve, or what seems to be the apparent success of what's going on here. David's coldness is now contrasted with Bathsheba's grief. Look at verse. 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. No lamenting by David. No mourning on his part. She's lamenting. Which I think gives evidence to the fact she really had no idea what was going on. I don't think she had any idea that David was, was making all these plans and had these things that were taking place. It's clear, I think, that David had horribly used Bathsheba for his own selfish lusts. We know, however, the cost of David's sin. We know the depths to which his sin had taken him. We know that David had acted and behaved according to his flesh. So this this theme of sin will happen one more time here. Verse 27, and when the morning was over, David sent And brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. There's almost a sense of a Disney movie going on here, right? Oh, it's all over. And he married her and they had a son and they lived happily ever after. If you've read any further in the story, you know that's not true. But in David's mind, I covered my sin. Everything's okay. I've been successful. Now friends, this is what is screaming at us, that we believe that our deception and cleverness has sorted things out to cover our sin. We believe sometimes it pays to take control of our own messes and deal with them even to the point that we feel that we are being responsible before God in our behavior, (laughs) Oh, God, thank you for getting me out of this mess. And he's like, I didn't get you out of that mess at all. What seems to be the end of the matter is, in fact, really only the beginning of the struggle from God's perspective. You see, there's David's perspective, there's a the human perspective, and it would seem that, that everything has been concealed, everything has been covered And now they can move on, but there's another perspective that's been silent through this story, but very present, because we find at the end of this verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Better translation there is, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You think God knew what David was doing? Absolutely. You think God was watching as David was doing it? Absolutely. He knows and he sees, and he is not pleased with his chosen king. From a literary perspective, 2 Samuel 11:27 27 is the heart of the story. Everything leads up to it, and everything flows from it. From chapter 12 through chapter 20, where David's newborn son dies in chapter 12, all we're going to see is David plagued by the abundance of problems. And primarily those problems don't come from outside. They come from within his own family. 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven 27 is rooted in the story to connect the dots drawn from David's sin to the consequences that he will be facing in the future. See, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. Now, friends, when you're walking down the path of sin, every obstacle, every frustration, every success even is an opportunity to be reminded of God's kindness. I grew up, like many of you, in a kind of a Disney context, okay? So... Our kids at home, we would watch Disney movies, and one of the ones that we loved to watch was Monsters, Inc. Any Monsters, Inc. fans out there? Okay, (laughs) Monsters, Inc. Um, And there's one line in that movie that um, I've always liked, and we use it a lot, probably still do, and it comes from the mouth of Ross, who says to Wazowski, Wazowski, I'm watching you always watching you. And it was a good teaching tool for our kids. And it's a good reminder that God is watching us. He's always watching us. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is all-present. He is all-knowing. He he is always able to see what his children are doing. And friends, that should cause us to respond in two ways. One, panic. Panic. Because God sees it all. Even into your very heart. But secondly, comfort. Because God does see it all. (laughs) It all depends on where you are on this path. You may be at a position where the obstacles in front of you you've committed the sin and God sees it and he knows what you've done and you have a choice then in that moment to say, God, I'm, I'm wanting you to come. I'm wanting your help. I'm wanting your counsel and I confess my sin. I repent of my sin and I want to be restored to you. God loves to hear that from his children. Yes, even when they are in the midst of their sin. He wants to hear a cry for help. So we can panic, and we should panic, but we should be comforted because God is aware and He's at work. So let's just play these things out as we bring things to a control. First of all, I would want to say this. When sin has taken us farther than we want to go, when we're in the, the grip of sin, we need to come running to the cross of Christ. That obstacle should drive us to come to the cross, should drive us to the place to remind us of what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross for us, right? Remember that video we just watched? It was accomplished. What Jesus did was accomplished because of the blood. If that is true, I come running and I cling. I say, God, please forgive me. Confess my sin. I repent of my sin. And now I want to pursue mortifying it. And we have been hiding or coveting our sin. When sin has kept us longer than we want to stay, we need to trust the cross of Christ. See, it's one thing to come running, but it's actually another thing to trust it and say, okay, this is what, this is what God says I want you to do now. Stop your sinning, and here's now how you get out of this mess. And quite frankly, you may not get out of the mess. There'll be consequences that you're living with, but here's a way that you can glorify me in the midst of this mess. Trust the cross. Number three. When we're standing in the mess and the consequences of our sin, when sin has cost us far more than we want to pray or pay, we need to rest in the cross of Christ. You see, sometimes we just beat ourselves up over and over and over again. Anyone here have a, have a sinful past? Does there ever come and slap you silly? Say, yeah, you think, you think you're really godly, don't you? You, you, gotta, you just gotta rest in the gospel. <laughs> You've got to rest in who you are because of Christ. You are not standing before God because of anything that you have done. You're standing before him because Christ accomplished it on your behalf. I want to invite you to, to turn with me to two passages of scripture here. First one is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 9 through 11. And I just, I just hear what's being said here and find yourself What he's saying here is, listen, you who are now part of the body of Christ were people who were enslaved, permeated with sin, and much of it you consider vile, scandalous sin. But he continues on. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those three terms, washed, Sanctified, justified are three things that happen to you the moment Jesus Christ drew you to himself and granted you the gift of new life. You're washed, you're set apart as holy, you are justified, declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are. Yes. You have sinned. Yes, you have gone down a path of destruction. There's a warning there, but you fight back and you say, yes, I have sinned, but that sin is paid for. Now, my, my seeking, my confession, my repentance, and my, my, my mortifying of the flesh is now seeking to become what I already am. It's restoring my relationship, this, this kind of um, familial relationship with God. But it's not saying that I'm unsaved now. This is what happened to you at salvation. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now, friends, that's, that's comfort. And then of course, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, and I would say that in this context, when he's talking about confessing sin, he's not just saying I acknowledge it. He's saying it's a confession that includes repentance. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is, this is being given to believers. We can be restored. It's kind of like today's world, it may not be the best example, but it should be. When two people get married, they make a covenant, right? And they—they are now married. They are one flesh. They're united together, just because they have a disagreement that, that goes pretty nasty, and just because maybe, you know, plates are flying and toilet paper is being tossed here and there, or that kind of stuff, doesn't mean they're no longer married. It means they need to restore that relationship. That's what I was talking about—this familial thing. We're God's children. We're part of the family. We're restored, but that doesn't change the certainty of our union. We're God's children united with him and it's all because of Christ. So friends, if you are in the bondage of sin, you're, you're struggling and you're, you're trying to cover it up or, or you're living with the mess, what you need, once again, I know it sounds really, really simple, but it's so impactful. You need Christ. <laughs> You need the gospel. You need to be reminded of the cross. You need to be reminded of who you are and what that means and what that looks like and how it is applied to you now so that you can find your way through forgiveness and restoration, repentance, back on the path of pursuing righteousness rather than the pursuit of that sin that you've been going after for so long. Lord, help us today. We are humbled, that you would be so kind as to give us your word, to paint a picture of our hearts through the life of David. Help us, Lord, to listen, help us to heed the warnings, but Lord, also to embrace the comforts of who we are because we are your children. May we this morning, as we are gathered here, consider the condition of our hearts, consider the sin that we've been trying to cover up, repent, confess, and praise you because of restoration that only you bring. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.